back to That's Ancient History. I'm your host, Jean Mingus, and I have just had the absolute pleasure of interviewing Anwen Hayward, who is a PhD student at the University of Roehampton, working in the field of classics, as well as an author who reimagines myths in her creative writing endeavours. Anwen's current research focuses on the depiction of mythological monsters in children's literature. She has a particular interest in classical receptions, which is all about uh, the reception, shall we say, of myth and ancient history in modern work. So a perfect example of this would be Anwen's own novella, Hear the World Entire, which retells the story of Medusa. So the myth of Medusa follows a ordinary mortal woman who is assaulted sexually by the Greek god Poseidon in the temple of Athena. Now when Athena discovers what has happened in her sacred uh, worship place, she punishes Medusa instead of perhaps Poseidon as we might expect her to do, and turns Medusa into the monster that we more commonly know her as, who can turn men into stone by looking at them and who has snakes for hair. In Hear the World Entire, Anwen gives voice to Medusa in a way that I myself have never seen done in ancient or modern literature. She explores how Medusa herself may have felt given the circumstances that she finds herself in and instead of her being a monster or a minor character in somebody else's myth she becomes the central figure and we explore her perspective. It's an incredible novella and it's a perfect example of somebody who has experience in both academia and in creative writing and bringing those worlds together. So that was something I felt that I very strongly wanted to hear from Anwen about and it was so interesting talking to her. Not only did we talk about classical receptions, the intersections between creative writing and academia, but also the relevance of Greek myth and female voices today in the era of the Me Too movement. But that is a little forewarning to anybody listening that there are discussions of sexual harassment and sexual violence in this podcast, although nothing in detail is certainly a central topic to a lot of the things that Anwen and I discuss. But without further ado, I would like to just get into the interview and hear from Anwen herself, so I hope you enjoy listening. Thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> We've just had some technical issues for just a moment. <laughs> yeah, the mic seems to be recording though, so, you know, fingers crossed, um, we, we might lose all the interesting bits if we definitely will. Yeah. yeah, in the middle. Um, well, yeah, so back to the point. Thank you for joining me. No problem. So I thought it would be nice to kick things off by talking a little bit about your novella, uh, Hear the World Entire, so we can sort of set up a little bit about um, just like your experience and your uh, mythological interests and uh, creative writing um, and then sort of see how that feeds into academia, which I thought would be fun. Um, so I'd love to know, uh, Hear the World Entire is a retelling of Medusa, mm. when you first encountered that myth um, and sort of in what format, because I think um, you, you've definitely given Medusa a voice that I don't think is really present in the ancient material in your novella, so like, did, did you immediately want to do that when you met Medusa? Yeah, I did. I think when I first read the myth of Medusa, it was I was reading uh, Metamorphoses, mm. um, and I've, I've yet to read it cover to cover. Because <laughs> it's quite a large book, but I was kind of flicking through it, and I saw the word Medusa, and I was like, "Oh, a myth I recognise." Yeah. Because I, you know, didn't know that many myths at the time. Uh, and I read it, and I was just completely struck by how 
it's kind of known as the myth of Medusa, but she's mm. in it for like five lines. Mm, you know, wow. the whole myth is just Perseus. Perseus does this. Perseus goes to her cave. Perseus cuts her head off. Perseus is very, very brave. And then the lady falls in love with Perseus. It's like, well, this isn't the myth of Medusa then, is it? Nope. <laughs> you know, this is the myth of how Perseus got the girl. Yeah, she's a monster in his story more than anything exactly. else. Exactly. Yeah. She, she's essentially just an obstacle for the hero to overcome mm-hmm. in order to become a hero with a capital H. Like, yeah. That's really all she is. So when I read it, I was quite struck by uh, her narrative and how uh, Ovid actually makes it quite explicitly clear in the translation that I read, which is the Raven translation, the word that is used is Medusa was violated by Poseidon. Okay. So when I read it, I actually hadn't heard that version before mm-hmm. and I sort of thought, well, why was she punished then if, she, if she's being you know, violated? Mm-hmm. Why has she been turned into a monster? So I sort of wanted to explore that. And I did that by sort of using my own personal frame of reference Mm -hmm. as somebody, I am a female in (laughs) 2019, you know, I think every single person has experienced some stuff with a capital S that they don't particularly enjoy. Uh, and the fact that you just can't talk about it. Mm-hmm. I know recently you've had the Me Too movement and it's become sort of more possible to talk about, you know, sexual harassment, sexual abuse, sexual assault. But at the time I read that myth, um, it just wasn't a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you couldn't talk about it. Yeah, something and you sort of skirt under the carpet. Exactly, kind of, yeah. yeah. Like everybody knew it happened, Yeah. but you didn't know that it happened to people you knew. Yeah. You just sort of thought that it was something that happened on EastEnders after nine o'clock. Yeah. So when I uh, read that myth, I sort of took the fact that Medusa is just completely silenced after Mm -hmm. that assault. And I thought, oh, oh, I can actually relate to that. Mm -hmm. That was how I felt. Yeah. Uh, And it came at actually a very pertinent time for me because it was a time at which I was undergoing quite a lot of like psychotherapy to deal with past traumas. And for me, the myth of Medusa was actually incredibly therapeutic. And that's why we wrote it was to give her the voice that I had been denied. Yeah. I love I love that idea, though, that um, despite the fact that a lot of these myths um, have quite, like, um, a focus on, on the male characters, they have, like, a, a, a patriarchal structure in the, like, original tellings of them, but yet still, like, modern women can can find themselves mm. in these stories. I think that's, an like, an incredible example of that, actually. I do, and I also think that, kind of, not on the, the flip side to that, but as a sort of addendum to that, as a woman reading myth, you do sort of have to, like, worm your way into the myth yes. to find your representation. I think a man reading it, you know, you've got Perseus, for example, in this myth, and he is just this aspirational figure you know he goes through and the gods all smile upon him and he's got this like you know, these cool sandals and this cool shield <laughs> but a woman reading that myth you have to really dig your teeth into the source material to yeah. find what speaks to you I find it interesting because a lot of the time when I discuss Medusa with people who aren't as familiar with classical mythology aren't as aware of the of the side of the story where she is assaulted and where she becomes that monster mm. and in particular that Athena is the one that curses her. Um, yeah. I, I, I think people are always often surprised by that and I, I wonder, like, I felt like that was a thread that you explored in the, in the novella as well and how you maybe felt about that because you would, I think people expect female solidarity in that, in that mm. instance but they don't get it. 
No, and, and I think um, it's quite easy maybe to perhaps depict it as like internalised misogyny. Mm. But I actually think it's more complicated than that. And mm. I think there's every single woman actually, as, as controversial as it may sound, is somehow complicit in the silencing of other women. Mm. Because we just are. I think every single human is complicit <laughs> in the silencing of mm. other humans because we don't want to hear about it. Yeah. And I think part of that might be because hearing about other women's trauma can actually be incredibly re-traumatising. Yeah. I mean, I'm somebody, I, I will very openly talk about, you know, sexual yeah. assault trauma, but I don't always actually want to listen to it. And no. that's quite a difficult thing to admit, but sometimes I do just sort of want to, like, plug my ears up with wax and just pretend it's not happening. Yeah, because it is everywhere. And I think especially if, like, you are a woman, it's everywhere. Exactly. Um, so there is, like, sometimes uh, for your mental health, I guess, you just shut down to it. Yeah. Uh, which is fair enough. <laughs> and yeah, so for me, that's kind of what I um, wanted to do with Athena there, is that she's punishing Medusa because she just does not want to see it. Yeah. So this has happened in Athena's temple. Medusa's been raped at the altar in Athena's temple. Athena hasn't had any choice but to see what's happening. Yeah. And so she lashes out because she just wants to kind of get rid of all the evidence that this has happened in her temple. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily because she blames Medusa, although there is a suggestion that she might. It's more that she just does not want to look at the effect of what's happened. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I like that's an interesting way to look at it. I think it shows that there's so many different sides to a myth and you can use them to explore quite contemporary issues. I, I know that you enjoy retelling a lot of myths, apart from Medusa as well, though, because um, you've been sharing them over the years on, on mm. your Tumblr. Um, I wondered what your first introduction to the retellings of myths was that like got you into this whole idea. Oh, I think the actual first myth retelling I ever read... Um, big cliche would be The Song of Achilles by <laughs> Madeline Miller because it's the first one that you know everybody reads and yeah. they just fall in love with the idea that you can take a source myth and you can absolutely transform it in mm. such a way that it's still recognisable as the source myth but it's got this whole new layer. Mm. So I've, I've read, you know, as a kid, I was obsessed with the Enid Blyton myth um, retelling. Yeah. I loved them, they were so good. Um, but I don't think they were particularly transformative. Mm. They were quite sort of straight-laced retellings. Yeah. I mean, they were sanitised. Yes. But they didn't... <laughs> quite, quite sanitised. <laughs> Hades took Persephone to his house. <laughs> but um, they didn't really sort of take the source myth and transform it in any way to yeah. make a broader point. And I think the first time that I encountered that would be Madeleine Miller's Song of Achilles. Yeah. Have you read Circe? Not yet, oh. no. But I went to see Madeleine Miller give a talk yes. on Circe and um, I nearly died. It was just so, <laughs> it was so interesting. Yeah, it is, it is incredible. I love that. That, again, I feel like is doing something similar to Hear the World Entire, which is giving a character of myth who's often a side character, mm. a voice, um, a female character, because it's often the, the women that are the side characters in, in these myths. And um, I personally love that trend that sort of seems to be emerging in the in the past few years of myth retellings that were kind of giving back the voices to women. Yeah. Um, I think that's amazing. Um, I actually was reading on your Tumblr, I don't know if uh, this is something you're up for talking about yet, but that you have been working on another uh, Medea retelling. Um, yeah. But this one's set in a more contemporary period, is that yeah, right? Yeah, set in uh, Regency Bristol. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> I, I wonder, actually, because I think there's like two distinct types of myth retellings. There's mm -hmm. the one ones that remain in antiquity, like Hear the World Entire or Circe or Song of Achilles, um, or there are the ones that are like 
adaptations in other time periods. Mm. So um, I'm looking at my bookshelves trying to remember. Like, <laughs> um, Girl Meets Boy by Ellie Smith's one. Um, Everything Under by Daisy Johnson. Right. They take myths and they, they deal with them in a, in a new setting. And I wondered how different is it? Um, kind of what are the benefits for both genres writing in? It's interesting. I find that using myth in its original context is potentially a little bit more freeing, Mm. purely because we actually don't know as much about the ancient world. A lot of it is kind of myth anyway. We have this idea of ancient Greece as being, for example, like beautiful white pillars. Yes. And it's it's not how it was. It was like your lovely vase right Thank you. It's my family. (laughs) We have a Greek column vase. (laughs) It is beautiful. I'm admiring it right now. Um, But yeah, for me, I quite like the fact that you have almost free reign to kind of construct this artificial Mm. mythological world. Yeah. Um, And it means that you have a lot of freedom to just say, and then they travelled to this amazing island that existed in the Aegean Sea, and you can pretend that it's there. Um, But then the counter side to that is that working with myth in a tangible, real time period, you're sort of constrained to work within a framework, Mm -hmm. and that can actually be equally interesting. It can be really fruitful, because you have to sort of look really hard to find the parallels. And then when you find the parallels, you can really draw them out. Uh, So for example, the Medea myth that I'm working on, uh, I've set it in Regency Bristol and also in Calcutta, like the, the opening section is oh, wow, in yeah. Calcutta. And my Medea is part of the Anglo-Indian community because yeah. in Euripides' version of Medea, she's described as this like barbarian woman mm-hmm. who's not Greek. Like, yes. The whole reason that no one really likes her is because she's not Greek, she's a bit witchy, a bit suspicious. Yeah. And for me, that spoke to so many contemporary issues that we have now with othering people who we do not perceive as being like us. Yes. And the best example that I could think of that um, was the Anglo-Indian community at the time who were just completely sort of forced to form their own community because Mm -hmm. they weren't Indian and they weren't British. Yeah. So they were neither one nor the other and therefore they were both and neither. Yeah. And so for me it was interesting to be able to take an ancient myth and apply it to a historical context that actually still speaks to a modern yeah, <laughs> it's incredible. It just shows how these these themes are timeless. Completely, yeah. Um, and yeah, you, like it's incredible to see somebody um, bringing out the relevant aspects of them. Are there any other sort of myths or mythological figures that you would be interested in writing about in the future? I mean, we we only have so much time. <laughs> I can't list them all. Um, no, I'm actually sort of I've plotted out um, a retelling of Cassandra wow. as well um, because I actually think that Cassandra is incredibly relevant. Uh, for actually similar reasons to Medusa. Yes. In that Cassandra is the archetypal woman who is not believed. Yes. And I think that recently we have started to realise that maybe we should believe women Mm. when they say that certain things have happened. Yeah. Uh, And I think that for me, Cassandra is a myth that is always, unfortunately, going to be completely relevant to what it means to be a woman. Yeah, absolutely. I I know know you're not just a creative writer, you're also um, a budding academic, like Um, myself, I like to think, sometimes. Um, I'm more budding than you are, I think you're more established. I don't know. You've been in more journals than I have. You edit more journals than (laughs) I do. I like that. Okay, let's call it even. Um, but we're both doing our PhDs at Roehampton, um, and I know that you, your your academic work also deals with classical receptions, and, mm. it, and it deals with um, uh, modern literature adapting myth and, and using myth um, 
for a modern audience. Uh, was it sort of your academic interests or your creative writing interests that came first and influenced the other? So I've always been interested in creative writing. Like it's literally just always been the thing that I can do. Yes. You know, growing up, that's what I got good grades in. It's just what I always saw myself doing. And it's actually what my undergraduate degree is in, is in English literature and creative writing. Mm -hmm. And then when I was sort of 22, I picked up Ovid's Metamorphoses and I just realised that I really wanted to study myth. Mm. I really wanted to, and I'd never studied it at school or at university. Actually, at my undergraduate degree, there was a module, and it was a classics module, yeah. and I d didn't take it because <gasps> I, I hate classics. <laughs> They're so boring and dry, yeah. or old, like dusty white man. I don't want to study that. But I don't think you're alone in thinking that. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. And, yeah. and it's because actually the syllabus for that classics module was just like Seneca, <laughs> Plato, <laughs> Aristotle, and it, it was just very, very dry readings of those yeah. texts, so I didn't study it. Uh, but for me, the creative writing and academia were very separate. Yes. And it's only within the last sort of three years that I've kind of merged the two. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love that, though. Like, I, I, as somebody who uh, spends a lot more time writing academic work, but personally would also l love to do myth retellings and mm. loves reading myth retellings, um, I, I think there is like a real benefit there to sort of dipping your toes either in the creating or the or the consumption of both of, of those things. I think they can aid you as a scholar. I don't mm. know if you agree with that. Yeah, no, I do. I think it, it's very beneficial to be able to come at a scholarly work with a more creative viewpoint because mm. I think that it inherently means that you're looking at it from different angles. Yes. So um, the, the angle that I tend to analyse things from purely because of who I am as a human being is kind of, you know, the feminist angle. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll read a myth and I'll just automatically be looking for the female characters, you know, and I'll sort of be thinking, why is there only one? <laughs> and why is she only mentioned twice in this 300-page thing? But... Um, no, I think being able to write creatively, or, or being willing to write creatively, yeah. I should say, um, is really beneficial, and I would honestly recommend anybody who wants to study myth to actually read creative works yeah. about myth. Do you have any favourites that you would I, recommend? I do. <laughs> it, it's, um, it's the Penelope ad, I think. Oh. I, ju I just think it's so good. Yes. <laughs> that was my first exposure to, to myth retellings, and yeah. I second that recommendation. It's an incredible book. So, so, so good. What is it about the Penelope ad that you think is such a good example of, of um, creative adaptations of myths? I think because it just gives a voice to a character in one of the most well-known mythological narratives on planet Earth, <laughs> and it gives a voice to a character who really doesn't speak that much in the original. Mm -hmm. And it tells, it, it uses this existing framework of a very familiar story to tell a completely different story yeah. that's still recognisably the Odyssey. Yeah. And I just think that's such a great achievement. Yeah, absolutely. No, yep, completely agree. <laughs> Love the love the Penelope ad. I think I might have mentioned this before. So if people haven't read it already, I don't know what they're doing with their life. Just read it. Yeah, just yeah just come on. It it's not even that long. <laughs> um, something else. That I'm just going to sound like a creepy internet stalker at this point. But there's something else that you were talking about on Twitter the other day that I wanted to uh, touch upon. Mm. Which I think is relevant uh, to both your research and to your creative writing. Um, and that is that I saw you mentioned recently... Tattoos of Medusa. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, did, I wanted to talk about receptions of Medusa because apart from your your book, mm. I 
he couldn't find any literary retellings of Medusa's myth in like adult literature. I mean, there's tons of um, the Trojan women and Penelope and um, loads of like retellings of the Odyssey and these kind of myths. But literally, all I could find for Medusa is is you. Really? You're winning. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I and I've been collecting a, a wee solid database on this, and so far you're you're the only one that's done Medusa. Oh my gosh. But I do come across Medusa in popular culture. I think like one of my first exposures to Medusa would have been like Hercules' Legendary Journeys, where she yeah. is this beast-like monster, or um, the original Clash of the Titans oh film, gosh, where yeah. she is like ha- like she's got a snake she's body. Paper mache. Oh my god! <laughs> and she's terrifying, and she is just literally a monster in these these versions. She's not really a woman, or there's no. nothing woman-like left of her. Um, and I was wondering uh, wh- what your experience had been like coming across Medusa in popular culture, and the, like um, if it if it is in contrast with what you're you're writing. Actually, your Clash of the Titans example <laughs> is is the best example that I have okay. because obviously you have the original Clash of the Titans in which Medusa is just this like hideous, <laughs> gnarled, you know, dark green woman with a snake tail. Yes. She, she's. I mean, I say woman. She's not a woman. As yeah. you say, there is nothing woman left about. Medusa, she's yeah. just this disgusting, hideous monster. And then you look at the remake. I haven't seen the remake. Uma Thurman, I think. Really? I may be wrong about that, but maybe no, that's Percy Jackson. No, it's not Uma Thurman. It's a different woman, but she's like a supermodel. Okay. Um, so I'm yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, she's like really attractive okay. and really beautiful, but obviously, you know, snake body. But for me, that epitomizes the kind of dual nature of Medusa so well. In that you yeah. have these versions of her where she's just repugnant, mm-hmm. and then you have the super sultry, sexy Medusa, yeah. and I just think, why does she have to be disgusting or sexy? Yeah. Why can't she just be, like, normal? <laughs> <laughs> so she, yeah, she's always extreme. Yeah, she's always, like, overtly sexualized. Yes. Or she's so repugnant there is no sexuality to her at all. And that was something that you highlighted on Twitter, um, that... There is a lot of like very sexualized tattoos of Medusa yeah. out there. Yeah. Um, and that might be something that you want to write an article on someday. I mean, yeah. I'll read it. <laughs> I mean, I, I am looking at it. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, and actually, so this is the least scholarly thing I've ever said in my life, <laughs> and I, I apologize. But I was watching an episode of Ink Masters. I have not seen this. Oh, is this it's a, a tattoo, tattoo show? Tattoo yeah. show. Yeah. Okay. Um, and they had a challenge where they all had to draw um, and then tattoo a Medusa portrait ah. and some of the people who wanted the tattoo were men and some were women and I was quite struck by the fact that all the men that were requesting the Medusa tattoo yes. were getting the sort of like half body Medusa with you know the big boobs yeah. and like the pouty lips and then the women were getting less sexualized ones they were yeah. getting ones where it was all about kind of her gaze yeah and you know she was usually sort of a pretty Medusa let's yeah. say but it wasn't like a sexualized Medusa yeah and I was really interested in the fact that it seemed to me that bodies that can be read as male and identify as male were so much more willing to get a tattoo of Medusa as sex object. Yeah. And then the female bodies were getting ones that were kind of Medusa as like an empowerment figure. Mm-hmm. And I wondered uh, what that said about the use of the Medusa imagery, which obviously historically has been used for... Yeah. So many different purposes. Absolutely. And um, Medusa's one of those characters that, I mean, something terrible happens to mm. her. I mean, a series of terrible things happen to Medusa, really. Um, she's eventually 
slaughtered by this hero mm. um, after spending whatever amount of time as, as a monster um, turning people to stone and then her image gets used a lot on like shields so it's almost got this evil eye kind of yeah. element to it um, and then obviously there's this like more sexualised version that we, we see now I, in, within any of that do you think there is a room for Medusa as an empowering figure for women? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I, I think that um, for me personally, actually, annoyingly, I'm not wearing it today because <laughs> I'm wearing a high-necked t-shirt. But when I can wear a necklace, I always wear a Medusa pendant. Like, oh, wow. like every day of my yeah. life, I, I just wear one. Because for me, as a you know, female-identified person, I find Medusa to be so empowering. Yeah. Because she's this person who has, you know, she's really been through the mill. Like, yeah. She, she really has. And she didn't have any say in what happened to her. But then her image became used as this, like, version of power that when she was living, she could never have embodied. Mm -hmm. And so to me, actually, as a female-bodied person, it's quite empowering to be able to reclaim her head mm. and kind of attach it to the body that needs it. Mm. If that makes sense. Okay, yeah, no, I like that. It's quite a hard, like way, hard thing to describe. Yeah. But. We've not really talked about this. I think because it's less... Um, like of a of a of a main element of of your retelling is what happens when her head's cut off, and yeah. that's this like moment of birth, and that there's these um, children that she births <laughs> from her neck stump, yeah, um, <laughs> like Pegasus. Um, yeah, that's maybe a whole other thing. <laughs> it's definitely very strange, though, isn't it? That Medusa can only sort of become a mother and give birth at the very moment of her death. Yeah. And I think, again, that actually speaks a lot to me about the death of her as a woman. Yeah. And then the birth of her as this kind of otherworldly image and this mother of monsters. Yeah. I know Pegasus is, you know, he's, he's a nice Nice thing, monster, but, but he's still he's kind of a monster. monster. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I think uh, when we were organising to record this podcast, I mentioned this, that oh, I'd yeah. just been to um, see a show at the Royal Ballet, or the Royal Opera House, uh, and I, no, I'm not, like, flush with cash. <laughs> I actually got £3 tickets. Um, did miss about 30% of the dancing because we were on these, like, little benches at the side, but it was still worth it for £3. And um, it was three, three short ballets, one of which was Medusa. And I think there was definitely an element of that, which was by Andrew Griffith, that was sort of attempting to give back um, Medusa's power and... Mm. and, and empower her as a mythological character um, and it really didn't shy away from like what happened to her and and rather than painting her as a monster it was mm. it was it was very incredible if you ever get a chance to see it i, I would recommend it especially if you can go for three pounds <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know if that's of any interest to you no, it absolutely <laughs> um, but yeah but i would love i would love to see more things like that like i said i haven't come across a lot of Medusa retellings. I, I wonder why that is. Do you think it's just because it's quite a difficult topic to tackle? I think so. And I, I do know that there's some Medusa retellings coming out fairly soon. I think Jesse Burton's got one. Yes, on the a young adult or children's one young next year. You're right, yeah. yeah. I forgot about that. Which um, I was actually, at, when I heard about that, I was in the process of adapting Here the World Entire yeah. to a full length novel. Yes. And then I was like, oh, do I, do I need to do that now? Because. <laughs> I think absolutely. I mean, literally, within the space of a few months, we got Silence of the Girls and Natalie Haynes' um, A Thousand Ships, which are both retellings of the mm. Trojan War from the female perspectives. Because, They're very different now, aren't they? Yeah, they are very different. And, I mean, if we look at the ancient 
sources and the ancient myths, we've got a million and one versions of each story. I think there's mm. always personally. Always I think there's a, one more. <laughs> yeah, I think there's always space for multiple versions and multiple people um, re reworking these stories. I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if over the next few years we we do start to see some more Medusa ones. Yeah. Because I think that yeah, I just think that it links in so well, uh, in particular with the Me Too movement. Yeah. It just really does about you know believing women's stories of assault and. I've always personally read Medusa's narrative as a story of stigma. Mm-hmm. And for me, what makes her sort of perceived as monstrous is the fact that she's been subjected to this hideous experience and she's viewed as monstrous because of victim blaming. Is yeah. how I've always read her myth. I just have. Absolutely. No, I can completely see that. So I wouldn't be surprised if that starts to become a... If not an explicitly kind of Medusa narrative. Yeah. I think we'll see some more myth retellings that have that bent to them. Yeah. Uh, Okay, well, I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) Me too. Um, Well, sort of, kind of, to um, start to wrap things up, I did want to briefly touch back upon your research and ask um, about what other kind of characters and monsters you're researching in your research mm. um sort of like what what themes are reoccurring between this this creative writing side of your life and your academic side of your life well really interestingly um completely unintentionally <laughs> one of the themes that's starting to emerge is actually the similarity of heroes and monsters yes okay i like it's this it's really interesting so uh, because i'm working with children's literature yes i thought the best way to do that would be to talk to some actual human children <laughs> so so I went into a school a while ago now, and I asked the children, they were six, I asked them, pick your favourite monster, and nearly every single one said, the Cyclops, I'm like, I love the Cyclops, because they've been doing the Odyssey at school, yeah. and I said, okay, so what we're going to do, we're going to think about the Odyssey from the Cyclops' perspective, Yeah. and the children were just like, ooh, ooh, okay, and they really got their teeth into it, and yeah. we had all these discussions about why the Cyclops was scary, and whether you know looking different was enough of a reason to be a monster. Yeah. And then at the very end of the session, this little six-year-old girl put her hand up and she just said, "Do you think that Odysseus and the Cyclops are the same?" And I said, "Well, I, I don't know. You know, wh- why do you think they are?" And she said, "Well, because when Odysseus's men go into the Cyclops' house and the Cyclops gets really cross and he kills them." Isn't that the same as when Odysseus comes home and he finds all those men who want to marry his wife and then he kills them? And I, I like, couldn't speak <laughs> for like two minutes. That's like Because it was such yeah. a good point. It's a scholar in, scholar in the making right absolutely, there. <laughs> on, absolutely. So I've been sort of, you know, trying to look more into that. And, and actually, it's completely true that behaviour that we often view as being monstrous, so for example, rage... Mm-hmm. Um, even just, you know, violence, mm-hmm. if it's perpetrated by certain individuals, we just accept it, we condone yeah. it. Whereas if it's perpetrated by the other, mm-hmm. then we vilify it. Yeah. And it's really interesting how you have these kind of core tenets of behaviour that can be simultaneously condoned and maligned, yes. depending on who's perpetrating them. And a six-year-old told me that. That's amazing. <laughs> I will ask somebody that I assume is currently reading a lot of children's literature with mm. uh, Greek myth references in it. Do you find that the the children's literature attempts to kind of sanitize one or the other's 
actions in order to sort of like make one person seem worse than the other so like do they calm down Odysseus's yeah. rage and yeah in, in my experience because obviously how we nowadays in 2019 construct a hero a hero has to be good yes. and kind and caring <laughs> whereas the Greek version of a hero you know you you could cut someone's head off it, it, it was kind <laughs> of fine so a lot of the modern versions definitely um sanitize the hero's actions and then by contrast make the monster worse yes so you'll have um i can't think of a very good example off the top of my head um actually the best one it's not particularly modern but to make it cyclical the enid blyton okay versions yeah. where you have these heroes and they're so good and so kind and they come across you know these women who are in grave mortal peril <laughs> and there's this awful terrible monster and they have to slay the monster because but he doesn't like doing it because it's violent <laughs> you know so you have yeah. these kind of i mean for example the scene um perseus and medusa there's absolutely no description of when he cuts her head off it's yeah. just and he took his sword to Medusa's head. Mm. And that's all you get. Yeah. You know? And then you have him meeting Andromeda, which in the original myth is a kind of two-line yeah. thing. And in uh, the modern versions, you know, he meets her and he's so kind to her. Yeah. And he says gentle things to her and they fall in love immediately. Yes. Yeah. You don't you don't get that in the originals. No. <laughs> It's very interesting, actually. This is perhaps unfair of me to ask because you've already recommended quite a few books, but it would not be that same in history if I didn't end the podcast mm. on asking you to recommend a book. Um, so if you just, you know, pick a book, any book, modern or ancient, that you just think people listening should go and read as well as hear the world entire. Obviously. Obviously, yeah, yeah. yeah. Goes without, goes without <laughs> saying, surely. Um, I would say... Girl Meets Boy by Ali Smith. Okay, yeah. Because that's a book that, when I first read it, I hated it. Oh, okay. I absolutely hated it. And yeah. it's because I was going into it completely naive. I was expecting, no pun intended, a fully straight retelling of the myth of Ivis and Yanthi. I yeah. wanted to see the story of a girl turned into a boy for the love of a girl. I yeah. wanted to see that. And I read her version, and it wasn't that. No. And I felt shortchanged. <laughs> threw it into the corner. And then about two years later, when I was more like, well-versed in how transformative retellings of myth could be, I reread it, and it's just so good. Okay. You know, yeah. it, it's just amazing. It takes the source narrative, and it absolutely just mashes it up and mm -hmm. it creates this really interesting analysis of gender and sexuality and fluidity mm -hmm. but it's still Ifis and Yanti. Yeah. And for me that is the book that I will say best sums up how amazing retellings of myth can actually be. Perfect. Perfect <laughs> way to end everything. Thank you so much for joining me. This Thanks has been me. so much fun and I'm sure everyone found it incredibly fascinating. Do make sure to check out the podcast on Twitter at That's Ancient as well as Anwin at Kyatic, K-Y-A-T-I-C. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, that will obviously be linked in the show notes as well as uh, Anwin's novella, which you can check out. Um, I do ho hope you have enjoyed this episode. And if you ever want to ask any questions or request future episodes, then just, like I said, send me a tweet. Until next time.